Our program is called Truth Encounter because daily we try to sit down together and spend some time opening our ears to what God is saying to us. Our study leader is Dave Wurtson, and let's join him as he continues our discussion of 1 Corinthians 5 and the symptoms of the spiritual wanderer. When you start to wander into sin, when you start to wander away from the Lord, where don't you want to be? Right here, right? Whenever you start to wander into sin, when you start to have that secret closed place in your life where you really don't want God to get, you don't want to be here. You know why? Because the power of Jesus is among us and He convicts you. The gathering of God's people, the teaching of His Word, the prayer starts to pull on your heart. And if you don't want that, you don't want to be there. But the Spirit's very powerful, so many of you come, and that powerful hand of Jesus pulls you back. And so as you hear the Word of God taught, you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have been arrogant this week. I've been rebellious this week. I've been wrestling with you about something, and I wouldn't give it back to you. And the Holy Spirit would pull you back into intimacy. The Apostle Paul is saying that that's the kind of presence that's among us. You know, you don't understand the power that's there. In fact, in this life, you know, it's kind of like electricity. You don't know that it's there until you plug a fork into the wall. Hopefully you plug a a regular something to run something into the wall. It's a whole lot better. But I found in my own life, especially at times of intense grief, I've shared with you in the past, when we lost David, when David was killed by that drunk driver, we gathered together. Mary and I got up there about Saturday afternoon, and on Sunday morning, I got to church late with Mary. I'll never forget it. It was a very small congregation of believers. I bet you there was only 50 people there. And it would have been real easy. See, I was raised going to church. My dad's big thing is to go to meetings. You go to meetings not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so I was raised. I've got a very deep-seated attitude. Let's not have a meeting. The Lord has a real sense of humor because he put me in a profession where you always have a meeting. But there's a very deep-seated emotional thing in me. Oh, no, another meeting. Anybody have that? Oh, no, another meeting. Much easier to sleep, right? Join the human race. But don't give in to that feeling. Because I'll never forget it. You see, there were about 35 people there that could have said, it's not important for us to meet. We're in this little Nebraska town. There's only a handful of us. Most people in this town sleep on Sunday morning. Why should we go? You know what they were doing? They were singing an old hymn. But you know, I remember walking up the stairs of that church. I walked in the door and that congregation was singing. One of those precious old hymns. And I just started bawling. I had to preach that day for Mary's dad. Just a couple days after David was killed. And I was sitting because they have their pastors, you know, like with those big chairs up in front. I had to sit there in front of the congregation. I was just coming unglued as that healing praise, the certainty of God's people, a small handful of people that were saying, Jesus is among us. The power of God is among us. The power of murder, the power of, of death coming very young 
It's very strong. But it can't stop us from praising Jesus. It can't stop us from confessing our faith. And there's tremendous healing comfort in that. You're going to need that one day. You're going to need that. And you need it every single week. You need that constant gathering of God's people to draw you intimate with the Savior. So Paul envisioned a group of Corinthian believers that didn't think about God as being way up there, though he was, but he's also omnipresent. And in a very special sense, and you can ask him to explain it all to you, he chooses to localize his presence. In the Old Testament, he chose to localize his presence in the Shekinah glory of the temple. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, he's chosen to localize his presence, wonder of all wonders, in you guys, in you all. I can't believe it. But he has. You are the presence of God on the earth. Your body is the temple. And when you temples all get together, it shines. It heals, it comforts, it moves. It also can discipline. It can also convict of sin. There's a purifying power in it. And so Paul said, when you're gathered together, with that kind of immediacy of the sense of the power of God among us, the Apostle Paul said something that's unbelievable. He said, I want you to hand this man over to Satan. Now, that's a tough one. So that the flesh, or as the NIV translated, so that the sin nature might be destroyed, His spirit saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that's a tough one. What in the world does he mean by that? We're going to hand this person over to Satan so that his sin nature may be destroyed. Now, I'm going to translate it this way. I think it's much more accurate to translate it this way. I want you to hand this person over to Satan's domain. As a result, his sin nature will be destroyed. Our purpose is that his spirit the new man that he received in Christ will be preserved at the final day of Christ and he will still be God's child. He will be home. Now, what in the world does that all mean? Is it some kind of a hocus-pocus, magical incantation, ooga-booga-booga, put him over to Satan, get him, demon of the dead? I can read you some of the Egyptian papyri where they do that. Oh, demon of the dead, destroy this person. And a lot of scholars will say, well, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying at all. I want to share with you, there are two spheres of spiritual power. I know some of you don't buy it. There's some of you who say, well, I don't really think there is a Satan. That's fine. You can think whatever you want to think, but I want to ask you, what do you know about the spiritual world? Who gives you the right to say, oh, I don't think there's a Satan? How do you know whether there's a Satan or not? And you've got to ask yourself, am I going to believe God's word? If I was intellectual this morning, going to follow my university training, I would tell you there isn't a Satan. But if I was really honest with myself, what right would I have to tell you that there isn't any Satan? It might make you feel a little bit better, but it also would be incredibly mean. What would you think of a preacher that told you, we're going to eliminate lions from the jungles of Africa. There's no lions in Africa. Don't worry about it. They're not hungry. They're just pussycats. In fact, they're not even there. You don't need a 30-odd six. Just go for nice strolls in the jungle. It'll be fun. I encourage you to do it. You'll have a blast out there. So you go out there and roar like this, a great big lion. 
roars out of the jungle. You go, David, you told me there isn't any lion. I said, there isn't any lion. It's all in your imagination. Roar, jumps right on you. Gobbles you down. What are you going to say to me then? You're going to come back. Boy, you're a great teacher. I'm so glad you gave me such comfort. Even though it was a big hoax, it was great. You'll be dead. Now, most of you don't think so, but there is a lion out there. There really is a lion out there, and he doesn't like any one of you. He hates your guts, honestly. And he has two basic characteristics, two lovely personality traits. He's a liar, number one. You love people like that. They're great. He's a liar, and then he's a murderer. He starts out creating an unbelievable illusion that you're having a blast. You've never been so much alive. You've never had so much fun. You've never just found the meaning of life. You have never, never lived like you are now. He starts out talking to you like that. And he will take you on the biggest ride you've ever had. Get you as high as you can imagine. But it's all a lie. Because he hates you. And then he'll murder you. You'll have thoughts of suicide. You might even take your life. Thoughts of suicide are very, very common when a person wanders away from the fellowship of Christ, when they wander away from personal intimacy, and they harden themselves out there in Satan's kingdom. Now, thoughts of suicide can come from a lot of other directions. So don't just jump to conclusions. But one of the realities is, is that lion is a liar, and he also murders. And I want every one of you to realize as you're gathered together here, I'm going to change to the positive side. Do you know that as we're gathered together, there's a tremendous protection over each and every one of us? You see, there is a safety in the gathering of God's people. It's like being in a sheepfold with a good shepherd that's watching over us. And he puts a hedge around us to protect us. And he cares for us. And I believe personally there's probably things that Satan desires to do to us on a daily basis that he's just not able to do because of the prayer and the intimacy and the caring of a gathered community of believers being in that fellowship of believers. You see, the fact that you want to fellowship, the fact that you break bread together, you like to remember the Lord, it's so easy, especially when you've been raised in that, to take it all for granted. But from a spiritual standpoint, there is that protecting influence from the power of the lion. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Jesus is in another category from Satan. It's not even a fair wrestling match. There's no way that Satan can win. So as a believer, you don't need to be frightened and fearful of him. But you need to respect him. But if you walk away from that fellowship, if you walk away from that intimacy with Christ, then you walk out into the lion's territory. Now, one of the things that Jesus does is he'll allow you out there to face the brunt of what sin will do. And that's what's happening to this man. You see, the, the church needed to say, we can't tolerate incest in the church. We can't tolerate a person who says that they've received a new life in Christ and is in love with Christ and cares for Christ. 
We can't have somebody telling the whole neighborhood we love Christ and then living in hardened, rebellious, unrepentant sin. This isn't a one-night stand. This isn't someone that is struggling to overcome a problem. This is someone who is arrogantly and pridefully choosing to follow a false theology in jettisoning the, jettisoning the ethics of the cross totally away. And the Apostle Paul is saying we need to put that person on the outside. Why? Not because we hate them, but because we love them. Because out there, they will experience the full brunt of what Satan can do. And as they come to the end of themselves, and Satan can't get outside the boundaries that God sets for him, just like with Job, Satan can only go so far as that Christian, that believer, faces the full brunt of what the satanic kingdom will do, there's a good chance they'll wake up. You know, I think I can illustrate this to you. I have a precious friend up in World of Life. I grew up, he plays the piano in a small church up in Scroon Lake. And he plays with all knuckles and feet and everything else. He's one of those old-timey piano players. But he had a son in his home that grew up in a Christian church just like ours. Received Christ when he was just young. But when he got up into those teenage years, he just became very arrogant. And he rebelled against his dad. I mean, he was on drugs. Bring him right into the house. There were several other little kids. There were about five kids in this family. Beautiful girls that were coming, just beginning to come into their teenage years. And this 20-year-old son was coming in late at night, just drunk as a skunk, cussing his father out sometimes threatening his mother. And one night, this believing daddy got his son in the living room and looked at him right in the eye and said, Son, you are out. Big tears rolling down his cheeks. He said, Son, I love you, but I cannot tolerate this in my home. You cannot live in this home and defy me and reject me and bring all kinds of influences in here that are just totally the antithesis of what Jesus represents in a family. And that son walked out into a cold Adirondack night. If you think it's lonely to walk out into Dallas, walk out into the mountains of the Adirondacks. And that boy was gone for about four years. And that daddy cried and he wept. Some of my friends share with me about one of the most unbelievable services that they ever had in their whole church. They had a church service where the whole place came unglued. Because this daddy and this boy got up before the whole congregation. The man was now about 24. His father about 55. They walked to the front of the church and this boy told the story that I just told. He told about walking out in the night. And then he told about his experiences, about walking out there into Satan's kingdom and trying it all, not going into all the, all the nitty-gritty details to, to arrogantly rejoice in the sin, but he shared the loneliness and the heartache and the lying and the brokenness of living in Satan's kingdom. And he looked at his dad and said, Dad, before all my believing friends, Thank you for loving me enough 
to throw me out. And he gathered his dad in his arms and son and dad wept together and cried together. And that son and that daddy are now walking together in a church family and fellowship again. Those are the hardest choices that parents can ever make. The hardest choices that church families can ever make. As I was thinking about this message today, I thought about, you know what I've noticed? People are uncomfortable in our church family when they get involved in immorality. Not when they get really hardened and unrepentant in it. In fact, to be honest with you, there's some that are not here today because they've chose to walk out into the world again. And 1 Corinthians 5 is telling us that will happen. Paul is telling us about a church that didn't make people feel uncomfortable at all about living in hardened sin. They were even rejoicing in it. But what I want us all to realize is is that when a person goes out there, that we continue to pray. Paul's intent in this text, Paul's intent in this text is not to cause that person to feel like they are rejected in the sense that, that, that people don't love them. People do love them, but because they love them, they don't tolerate wickedness. Think about some people maybe in your family, some people in this church family that you're going to pray for. Because there's precious brothers and sisters that are out there. And I know it's hard. I know it throws some of your faith into a great quandary. You can say, how can it happen? How could someone know Christ and then live like that? 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't tell us all the reasons why, but it tells us the reality that it can happen. And it tells us that there is still that redeeming grace. If they are genuine believers, that spirit life within them, that gift from the Holy Spirit is an indestructible, gracious gift. And over the course of time, this text is not saying that someone's going to suddenly be zapped. They didn't say they might just die. They might live a long time out there in Satan's kingdom, according to this text. It doesn't say they died instantly because later on in the chapter, it tells us not to eat with this person. So he couldn't have died instantly. He's talking about a process out there in the world, away from the local church, away from God's people, where they come under the disciplining hand of living in Satan's kingdom. But the purpose is to bring them home. The story of the prodigal son. You say, Dave, why as a church do we need to do that? Paul in the next few verses talks about the fact that we are celebrating the Passover feast. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, if you were a Jew, on the night of the Passover, you would ransack your home and you would find all the old leaven. Now, you didn't find yeast. They didn't use much yeast in the Old Testament world. It wasn't that available. You couldn't go to Kroger's and buy a great big sack of it. What they used was sourdough, fermented dough. You would keep a little bit of the dough, and a lot of you are smiling. You know what I'm talking about. You take a little bit of that dough and let it get really rancid, just a little bit, and then that becomes the initiation of the fermentation process for the next batch. But if that goes on for a long time, you end up with a lot of crud. So once a year, the Lord made them go through all their home and get rid of all the bad dough, all that leaven, all that fermented dough. And he made them start all over again. 
And the Apostle Paul takes that illustration of the Jew going through his home, looking for the fermented dough, getting rid of all that stinky, polluting, fermenting crud. And he said to throw it out. And when all the crud was out, they would sacrifice the Passover lamb and they would eat together. Paul says this, believer, our Passover lamb has already been slain. And he's not slain every year. He was slain once. And then he says, therefore, because the lamb has been slain, there shouldn't be any old leaven in our life. We shouldn't be allowing that fermentation process of sin to control us. We've got to get rid of it. The Apostle Paul said for the believer, not just once a year, but every day is the feast. Every day is the celebration of our deliverance. And not a deliverance from Egypt, but a deliverance from slavery to sin. And Paul beautifully brings together the ethics of the cross, the rejoicing in that self-sacrificial gift of Christ where he paid the penalty for us, not so that we could live any way we feel like it, but so that we could be free to live in love with him. We close with saying, okay, if I'm not supposed to have intimate fellowship with hardened, unrepentant believers, if I'm not supposed to eat and have close friendship with a believer who says they're born again, but lives exactly like an unbeliever, doesn't struggle with sin, is arrogant, rebellious, cusses like a trooper, sleeps around as everything else, swindles people. If I'm not supposed to have fellowship with them, what about the unbelieving people? The Apostle Paul closes by saying, Church, don't ever forget your mission in the world. And I close with saying this, Believers, we are called to become part We are called to mix it up, to associate with the men and women in your office, with the teachers at school, with the kids at school. We are called to go into all the world. We are called to go out there. Believers have not been called to create their own culture, which is what we've done. Some Christian cultures, they don't even know what an unbeliever looks like. You have a meal with an unbeliever and they go, man alive, it's like having a visitor from another planet. I wonder what I should say. It shows you how far away we get. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, I didn't write you to stay away from the immoral people of the world. I didn't call you not to have coffee in DTs with one of the secular people in Midlothian that everybody knows is a crook and steals from everybody. I didn't tell you not to sit down and have coffee with a guy like that. Most of you go, oh, Dave, how in the world could you ever do that? Associating with people like that. Paul says, no, those are the people I want you to associate with. They're the people that are sick. They're the people that need to see the light. But oh, how we've gotten things so turned around. We turn away from the sinners that can't do anything else. We who have the only message that can help them to be set free. We turn away from them. We give them the impression that we're so different from them that we don't want to have anything to do with them. And so the people in your office, they relate to you as Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Mr. Big Self-Righteous Hypocrite because you won't do anything with you. They ask you to play tennis. I'm sorry, going to church. Won't you go skiing with us in Colorado? No, going to a Bible conference. You know, would you come over to our house to eat? You know, we're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. Would you come over? Nope, got to go to church. 
No, you don't. That'll be a lie. It's such a simple idea. But it's such a mirror of Christ. Jesus was with those who needed a physician. And that's what we need to be. The whole message of 1 Corinthians 5. Total dissociation. Total separation from the believer who lives in heart and unrepentant sin. Free association with the unbelieving sinner that's never had anybody flesh out Jesus Christ for them in everyday living. Do you got that? Do you got that? Total separation, total intolerance of hardened, rebellious, arrogant sin in our midst. They need to be put outside, not because we hate them, but to preserve them, to allow God to work in their life. Free association with unbelievers that need to hear about the light. This is Dave Wurtson, and we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. But I trust that you will heed what we've been talking about. I think it's so needed across the evangelical church in the United States. We have become very, very exclusive. We have become divided from unbelievers. Many times unbelievers feel that we wouldn't really want to have anything to do with them. And as a result, we cut ourselves off from the very people that we need to bring the light to. On the other hand, as I brought out in our study today, we're often very free to associate with sinful believers that are living right in our midst and how we need to turn that around. And I pray that the Lord will use our study today to free you up. Some of you have a great heart to be out there with unbelievers. And sometimes some of your self-righteous religious friends uh, try to call you away from that. And I pray that you'll read over 1 Corinthians 5 for yourself and that it'll give you confidence to keep reaching out to the unbelieving world.